Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Enrico Glab from the University of Luxembourg on this show. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You are German originally and studied computational molecular biology in Saarbrücken. You then got your PhD from the University of Nottingham under the supervision of uh, Professor Krasnogor and Dr. Garibaldi. After then, uh, you went to the Emblin Heidelberg to work in the Data Integration and Knowledge Management Group. And now since 2011, you are research associate at the Luxembourg Center for Systems Biomedicine. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then also uh, in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, well, so uh, at high school, uh, I already um, did a special course in biology. So uh, during the, the last years uh, at school, so I had a very good uh, high school biology teacher. And uh, at that time, uh, there was also uh, the sequencing of the human genome going on. So I was very excited about that. And I saw how uh, basically computer science and uh, um, yeah, biology were developing new uh, experiments mental and computational techniques that were basically uh, yeah, moving together and uh, providing a new interface between these two different domains. And so I was very excited about that and uh, did both special courses in biology and in computer science. And that basically uh, yeah, led to my decision to also study bioinformatics, which was really a new course at the time. So it was really, uh, at least uh, I felt it as a quite innovative uh, uh, subject area. And uh, yeah, that's that's how I still see it today. So you would say that um, yeah, this single event in uh, describing or or unriddling the the human genome was what l drove your interest. Yeah, I think that was really one of the the main uh, ongoing stories at the time in science. And uh, yeah, I think maybe it was also this this biology teacher at school who was really uh, 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 yeah a very motivating teacher and. Uh, Uh, yeah, very, uh, uh, very strong teacher uh, in terms of uh, 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 yeah, showing what's going on currently in science and not just uh, yeah, doing the standard uh, courses, but really trying to bring uh, current science into the classroom. And that was really fascinating for me. Yeah, um, I also um, did a little bit of research of, uh, about you and, and, and I went to your website from, from the university website and I saw that not only your papers are presented there, but also your like posters and presentations you had at, at, at meetings and different meetings. Is this like something that you focus on or is this something that the university is doing? So I think it's always good to have a mixture between uh, basically written work, but also presentations, basically reaching out. I, I think in, in my field of research, it's very important to also communicate with uh, with the wet lab scientists and uh, and to reach out to to uh, the other domains that that basically interact with us. Because uh, as a computer scientist, there's always a risk that you basically Uh, remain isolated in the computer science department, just work on algorithms and, and statistical methods, but uh, your work is not really relevant for, for uh, the many biological applications uh, that are there. And so I think in, in my field of research, this is really a very important uh, part of, uh, of the work to, to basically uh, reach out to, to the collaborators in other domains 
in order to, to uh, really work on projects that are relevant for, for uh, uh, biology and not just basically theoretical work. Okay, I see. I saw also like one poster, which is uh, really interesting, which was published in 2015, addressing the variance in technical replicates in metabolomics and proteomics data. Also, so the, the analysis of those data, and you also provided a web tool for that. Um, why did you see like a need for such a tool and, and, and how, what does it do? Yeah, so I think uh, one big problem in uh, bioscience is that uh, yeah, many of the new developments in statistics and uh, in, in the analysis of uh, high-throughput omics data, they, they uh, are not really uh, made available to, to biological, uh, biological scientists in a way that is easy to use and that allows them to profit from, from the new developments. So often uh, only bioinformaticians are really able to, to use some of the new tricks uh, to gain statistical power and to, to exploit uh, uh, new algorithms because uh, uh, you need really uh, some skills in scripting and, and programming to, to be able to use these new tools. And so I wanted to make basically uh, some of these new ideas available to our wet lab scientists in a way that they can just upload their data use a few mouse clicks and then they get the results without uh, having to know uh, what, what's happening in the background. So, so that's really uh, also where I see my role as a bioinformatician to, to basically work at the interface between uh, biology and, and computer science and to basically provide the benefits of new algorithms, new statistical tools to the wet lab scientists uh, uh, yeah, without uh, having the requirement that they need to understand everything that, that goes uh, basically behind uh, the user interface. That's very interesting. But um, I saw in, in the title, it's like only metabolomics and only proteomics data. Why is genomics missing here? Or is it in there and it's just not mentioned? Well, so in this case, this was a special tool where basically um, you could exploit uh, uh, technical replicates uh, uh, um, in a more efficient way in these types of data sets. So this mainly works with functional omics data sets where you need uh, or often have these technical replicates, whereas for genomics data, uh, uh, typically uh, um, the, the uh, variants uh, that you call, they, you, you don't need te technical replicates. So, so this was really a, a special tool for a special type of data. Uh, but we were also working on the analysis of, of genomics data, of course, and then we're also building special tools in particular, also tools that try to integrate these different types of omics data. So basically integrating genomics data with transcriptomics, with metabolomics, to basically uh, get a more complete uh, picture of what's happening, what's going on in the complex disease. Yeah, this is basically where, where all science is, is moving forward uh, right now, right? So integrating all those data that is maybe already available and maybe is already then generated. Yes, yeah, so, so I think uh, the big challenge for complex diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease is basically to bring the different data sources together. So we actually have already quite a lot of public data available. Then, of course, we have data from our collaborating cohorts, but all the data sets have different formats. Uh, there are many different problems associated with the pre-processing and normalization of the data. And I think that's really where, where I I see uh, my chance to, to bring in my, my knowledge in this domain and try to integrate the different data sets and uh, use network and pathway analysis methods to, to basically get a more global, more holistic picture of, of what's happening in these complex diseases. So how, I mean, you're now mentioning Parkinson and Alzheimer's diseases, but, but uh, on a more basic level, how, how complicated is it to, 
I mean, the, the data sets are out there, yes, but how well are they documented? How hard is it to to get to the yeah to the true meaning of those data, and how hard is it to then use it? Because you might not have all the information that is necessary to to work with them. Yeah, so um, I mean, uh, I can benefit basically from many of the standardization efforts that are going on. So, in particular. Uh, databases like the Gene Expression Omnibus, which shows uh, transcriptomics data, they really uh, uh, try to um, yeah, uh, enforce uh, uh, using or, or uploading the data in a standardized format. So there is this um, YAMI minimal information about the microarray experiment. So it's a kind of standard that uh, basically ensures that at least the minimal information that you need to, to analyze the data is always provided. And so these standardization efforts, uh, uh, they, they really uh, help us basically to, to ensure that what is uploaded to the databases really contains at least the minimum information that you need. Of course, there are still quite a lot of issues. I mean, uh, often uh, when we do the quality control analysis of the public data sets, we find out that we have to filter out uh, really a large proportion of the samples. And so these are, of course, issues we have to deal with. But still, I think that uh, uh, basically by focusing on, on those data sets that are already standardized and uh, basically doing a rigorous quality control, we can really uh, uh, exploit the public data and uh, integrate it uh, with, with uh, the data that we receive from collaborators in a very efficient and e effective manner. So you then also began to focus on neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson and Alzheimer's. Uh, but let's focus first on the Parkinson disease. In 2015, you published a paper comparing Parkinson disease samples with aging samples and underscoring the age dependency of uh, this disease. And you also yeah, developed a tool for that. But uh, which factors did you find that influenced the development of Parkinson's disease and how does this compare to the aging factors? Yeah, so of course, Parkinson's uh, is an age-related disorder, and uh, um, there are many hypotheses uh, uh, yeah, that have been presented in the past on uh, uh, how aging uh, really at the molecular level contributes uh, to Parkinson's disease. And since uh, there was a lot of public data available, both uh, um, on molecular changes uh, during adult aging of the human brain, but also uh, for the molecular changes that occur in Parkinson's disease, uh, I really thought that uh, there's a great opportunity to try to integrate this data and see which of the changes uh, that occur in Parkinson's disease uh, do we also see during adult aging. Is there a statistically significant overlap? And are there also some, some uh, processes that have already been described in the literature as potential uh, yeah, age-related risk factors that could contribute to Parkinson's disease? And indeed, we see some changes in uh, dopamine metabolism in particular, uh, um, there is uh, there was one gene, a transcription factor called NR4A2 or NO1, and so this is a transcription factor that controls basically the transcription of uh, many genes involved in dopamine metabolism. So, for example, dopamine transporters. And so here we really see strong changes both in Parkinson's disease as compared to controls, but also during adult aging. And so uh, we think that this could be uh, one of the ways uh, how, how uh, basically age-related changes increase the risk for Parkinson's disease by basically reducing the expression of this very important uh, transcription factor uh, that basically controls dopamine metabolism uh, in the brain. So is it then more that the accelerated aging or aging from a from a different or uh, for a special time point? Because there were studies that um, from 50 years on, there is like a 
uh, yeah, higher risk for, for those uh, age-related diseases. Um, is it more that um, Parkinson resembles also this aging or is it more that aging yeah, pr yeah, increases the risk for Parkinson's disease? Well, I think that's still an open question. But, uh, um, I mean, right now, actually, we're looking uh, uh, in a new study at the overlap in uh, brain-related changes in Parkinson's disease and uh, progeria. So progeria is a disease that, um, yeah, associated with symptoms that resemble an accelerated uh, form of aging. And there we also see a significant overlap. So I think it's still too early to say uh, uh, whether Parkinson's disease is an accelerated form of aging. But definitely, uh, 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 there seem to be some factors uh, uh, that uh, are or some, some molecular factors altered in Parkinson's disease that we also see in, in progeria, uh, so, so uh, a disease that resembles accelerated aging, and, and also changes that we see during adult aging of the brain, which suggests that, that really uh, uh, um, yeah, molecular changes that occur during adult aging at least could influence uh, uh, the risk for Parkinson's disease significantly, uh, whether we should interpret the whole disease or only as an accelerated form of aging, or whether there are many different factors that, that uh, um, influence the risk for Parkinson's disease and aging is all, only one uh, of these factors. I think that's, that's still an open question. Um, I personally think there are many factors that, that influence the risk for Parkinson's disease, but uh, aging and age-related uh, changes in the brain are certainly uh, one important component. When you de uh, diagnose Parkinson's disease, it's not only important to look at like metabolomics data or blood data, but it's also there are also like imaging approaches to 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 yeah to see whether there is Parkinson's disease. And you also worked on a machine learning approach here that brings together those PET imaging and also blood metabolomics data. Which factors are those that you include in those analysis and uh, how does then the approach of machine learning that you also uh, follow um, help here? Yeah, so we are very interested in improving diagnostic models for Parkinson's disease. And uh, there again, we think that uh, basically combining the information from many different sources uh, and from many data sources, basically, that, that contain independent predictive information, that this uh, could really be a promising approach to improve the predictive accuracy that we can achieve with our models. And so uh, the project that you referred to, that was basically uh, um, yeah, um, work on a joint analysis of neuroimaging and metabolomics data. So basically uh, using neuroimaging data uh, from the brain, from Parkinson's disease patients and controls, and using also uh, blood metabolomics data from the same patients and same control subjects. And then we could really show that if we first pre-process uh, both of these uh, data sets individually and look only at the features that are uh, uh, discriminative uh, in both of these data types and then combine these two signatures together, then we obtain uh, basically a combined signature that is stronger than uh, both of the individual signatures. And what we found there uh, was uh, specifically for the neuroimaging data that uh, yeah, uh, in certain uh, brain regions, uh, in particular, uh, yeah, the brain regions that are also known uh, to, to uh, show some alterations in Parkinson's disease, so the midbrain, in particular the substantia nigra, there we see strong uh, changes in, in the signal in uh, both uh, F-DOPA PET and FTG PET. So these were the two types of neuroimaging data that we looked at, so basically showing us changes in uh, dopamine signaling and uh, uh, glucose metabolism in the brain. 
And basically in the midbrain there we saw these uh, strong uh, uh, signal changes in Parkinson patients as compared to controls. So we filtered out these signals and then combined them with the signals that we obtained from the metabolomics data from the blood. And this basically gave us uh, a better combined predictive signature for discriminating PD patients from controls as compared to using only one of these data sources uh, independently. So the, the advantage would then be to to detect the Parkinson earlier and, and how much would it be then? So here we're still focused at the motor stage. So this is uh, um, uh, basically the stage uh, um, where uh, yeah, some uh, um, yeah, motor symptoms, some, some movement disabilities are already visible because uh, for, for this uh, stage we have uh, uh, the largest uh, amount of data. But right now uh, we are also working on some data from at-risk cohorts. So basically uh, individuals who are, who are thought to be at risk of developing Parkinson's disease, for example, because uh, some of their uh, family members already have the disease or because they, they have certain uh, symptoms that we consider as uh, typical premotor symptoms of the disease. And so we already have collected uh, the first samples basically from Uh, individuals who later really converted to Parkinson's disease, where we have both the samples before the conversion and after the conversion. And now we are basically applying the same analysis approaches to these uh, uh, pre-motor stage uh, uh, samples. So to the data basically that was collected before these individuals converted. And then of course the goal there is to really already detect the disease uh, at the stage where uh, the motor symptoms are not yet visible. So really at the very early stage uh, of the disease. So that's still uh, ongoing, but uh, yeah, we think that uh, it's possible to detect the disease already uh, some years before the first motor symptoms become visible. So this would then also play into some treatment to like cure the disease before it even surfaces. Yeah, so it's important to mention that right now we have no uh, reliable diagnostic tests for Parkinson's disease and no disease-modifying uh, therapeutic approaches. And uh, we really believe that if we uh, can develop uh, a test that can detect the disease at the very early stages, then this will also help us to develop uh, new and uh, more effective uh, uh, therapies that are really disease modifying and uh, that can really halt uh, the disease at, at an early stage. So I think one target would then be probably the dopamine um, pathway or what, what do you aim for? So that's definitely uh, one of, uh, of the, the key uh, uh, target pathways. So in particular, also because we saw these early changes in this gene NR4A2, which is a transcription factor that regulates uh, dopamine metabolism. But of course, there are also some, some interesting other uh, pathways and cellular processes that we're looking at. So for example, uh, there are some uh, early alterations in uh, mitochondrial processes. So mitochondrial dysfunctions, Dysfunction is one of the, uh, the key alterations that occur early uh, in the disease. And then uh, there are some other uh, key pathways and processes. Uh, so we also think that lysosomal dysfunction plays an uh, important role. And so we're looking at multiple pathways. I think uh, focusing just on one, uh, one process and one uh, um, pathway that, that may be too simple because the disease is really complex. And it may also be the case that there are different forms of Parkinson's disease. And there are different pathways that, that can lead uh, to this disease. One question I always have is when, when you work with machine learning and artificial intelligence and all those things, is it requires a, a decent amount of, of, of computer power, right? And 
So how much computer power do you have standing around in your office or <laughs> or are you relying on a big uh, a big center where all these computers are standing and you just share them with others? Yeah, so it's not standing in my office. So in my office, I just have a normal, uh, uh, basically uh, a personal computer. But of course, with this computer, I can connect to a high-performance computing system that has been established uh, uh, at our university already some years ago. And there we really have everything we need. So we also have uh, even graphical processing units where we can run uh, uh, algorithms, basically, uh, uh, so we can run uh, uh, different uh, analysis basically in parallel. So using these parallel processing capabilities of, of these graphical processing units, and this is really extremely fast. So um, I think that the data that we have uh, is already uh, really big data, so it's large, large scale data, uh, but uh, the current processing power that we have is really able to, to handle that. And even if we uh, uh, get significantly more uh, data in the future, I think uh, uh, we are currently well set up to, to, to be able to handle, handle that also for the future. So next to Parkinson's disease, you also studies Alzheimer's disease. Do you see there any connection between those two diseases? Yeah, so definitely. Uh, um, I mean, one, one of our uh, main research areas is basically looking at uh, the influence of uh, or, or the association between uh, changes that occur in the brain during adult aging and these different neurodegenerative disorders. And we really see a significant overlap between Parkinson's disease, between Alzheimer's and uh, adult aging of the brain. So there's, there's really a significant overlap between all these different disorders, at least uh, at the molecular level, looking at uh, the functional omics data that we have collected in the past. But of course, there are also differences. So, so uh, we see that, that uh, if you do a pathway analysis, then the top brain pathways will uh, be different for these different diseases, although we find uh, a significant overlap. And so uh, I think this, this also gives us information on uh, uh, basically how we can uh, uh, treat these uh, diseases uh, more specifically by focusing on, on different pathways as uh, potential target pathways for uh, experiments in cell culture models and uh, uh, in vivo models. Uh, and uh, of course, also these, uh, these uh, experiments and these statistical analysis can tell us uh, how we can build uh, differential diagnostic models that also tell these different uh, diseases apart. So in, you also uh, brought out a publication in 2016 where you investigated the gender difference that was shown in several studies already and how this would be applicable to Alzheimer's disease. Um, can you explain why there is such a difference in brain disorders between the sexes and how this would uh, translate then to Alzheimer's? Yeah, so interestingly, uh, in Alzheimer's disease, uh, females have a higher risk of developing the disease. And this remains significant even if uh, the analysis is adjusted for uh, differential survival between the sexes. And in Parkinson's disease, we actually see the opposite. So their uh, males have a higher risk. So we really think there's a, there's a disease-specific uh, sex difference in both of uh, these disorders. And uh, of course, there are many uh, yeah, different hypotheses that have been discussed uh, in the literature on what could be uh, the main factor there. Of course, uh, hormone uh, uh, regulation is thought to be uh, an important factor there. But we thought it may be interesting to really look uh, uh, look in detail at, at our data at the molecular level uh, um, data to see whether uh, we can really find a significant sex difference that are disease associated in both of these uh, diseases and whether we can also link them with the known 
molecular hallmarks for these different diseases. And so for Alzheimer's disease, we found uh, one factor, uh, so basically um, a gene involved in ubiquitin uh, signaling uh, that also is involved in the regulation, uh, as we think of uh, one very important factor in Alzheimer's disease, the so-called uh, tau protein or microtubule-associated uh, protein uh, tau. And uh, um, so uh, we think that basically the gender difference that we see in, in this particular protein may at least uh, in part contribute to the gender differences that we see uh, in Alzheimer's disease. This is also due to some factors or genes or proteins that are encoded, encoded on the X chromosome. I mean, this would, would, would be a, a, yeah, a conclusion that you could draw. Yes, so this particular gene uh, called ubiquitin-specific peptidase 9 is actually really uh, a sex-linked gene. So, uh, uh, so there's a, an X chromosomal and a Y chromosomal uh, version of that gene. And uh, what we basically see when we look at the data is that uh, if we basically combine uh, the expression levels of the X and the Y chromosomal uh, version of that gene together, then we have uh, a big uh, overall difference between the two different genders. So, so basically, we think that this this kind of uh, uh, um, yeah difference in uh, in overall uh, uh, expression of this gene, but basically that this uh, could explain why uh, uh, yeah this this gene basically uh, uh, yeah uh, has has a different uh, disease related change uh, in Alzheimer's disease. So earlier this year, you also published a paper on, on exactly the, this protein because you knocked it out. Um, and studied the effects on neurodegenerative diseases. So what was the effect of this knockdown? Yeah, so, so what we see is basically that, uh, um, uh, so we studied uh, the knockdown both in uh, cell culture model and uh, in the meantime also in uh, a mouse model. And what we really see is that uh, the expression of uh, the tau protein, so this well-known Alzheimer's-associated protein, uh, significantly decreases and decreases in a concentration-dependent manner. So basically, if uh, uh, we use uh, a larger quantity of the knockdown reagent, we also see a stronger decrease uh, in the tau protein. And so basically, this, this also confirms uh, what we saw in our microarray data, that basically there's a strong positive correlation between uh, uh, this candidate gene, uh, USP9X, and, and uh, the tau protein, And that basically uh, decreasing the expression of, uh, of this candidate gene also decreases uh, the levels of the tau protein. So basically, we think that, that this could also be a potential uh, target for therapeutic intervention, basically uh, uh, trying to uh, develop compounds that can decrease uh, the expression of, uh, uh, of uh, um, this candidate protein in order to also uh, basically decrease uh, uh, the expression of uh, microtool-associated protein tau. So since we are an epigenetics podcast, <laughs> um, I, I need to ask, is this, is there, uh, yeah, when you study or when you are talking about the effect of, of, of transcription and, and uh, finding a compound that, that may regulate all those things? I mean, you're already in the field of epigenetics, right? Modulating transcription. Um, is there any target that you already have in mind that might play a role in this? Uh, many, may, maybe any histone modification or transcription factor? So there is no drug target that we are uh, uh, that we have identified, but what we definitely see, uh, for example, in Parkinson's disease, uh, we have recently observed that there are significant uh, uh, changes in gene expression in DNA methyl transferases and also in histone deacetylases. 
And so we, we think that uh, altered epigenetics might really play an important role in the disease. And uh, what we have observed in our own data also matches with, with uh, what has been reported in the literature uh, uh, by, by other researchers. So for example, there have been studies uh, looking at uh, uh, PD-associated genetic risk variants and uh, the corresponding genes, uh, uh, at least for some of these risk uh, variants, were uh, risk factor genes were also shown to be differentially methylated in various uh, brain tissues in Parkinson patients as compared to controls. And uh, so interestingly, uh, uh, what has also been observed is that uh, these uh, Parkinson's disease-linked DNA methylation changes in the brain, they also show a high concordance with methylone changes in blood. So we think that maybe uh, looking at uh, epigenetic changes in blood could really provide a useful uh, surrogate biomarker for the changes uh, that have been observed in the brain. So basically that's uh, one of our uh, next projects to, to study basically uh, uh, epigenetic changes in blood in Parkinson's disease and maybe later also in Alzheimer's disease to see whether uh, we can really find significant changes uh, that might be helpful for biomarker modeling. When you're talking about blood, are you talking about cell-free DNA or really like blood cells? So you would isolate the, the, the chromatin from blood cells and then look at that or would you look at cell-free DNA or cell-free nucleosomes? No, we really want to look at blood cells and also specific subpopulations. So in particular, we want to look at monocytes because uh, based on the current literature, uh, um, yeah, monocytes uh, appear to be most promising in terms of changes that have already been described in Parkinson's disease. But ideally, uh, in the future, we want to look at multiple different uh, subpopulations of blood cells and really uh, uh, comprehensively profile the epigenetic changes uh, in these different uh, cells. So when you talk about uh, profiling those changes, uh, which uh, yeah, which method are you going for? Yeah, so we want to use uh, a toxic uh, profiling because in the past people have only looked at uh, DNA methylation. But uh, since our data, we also see, for example, changes in histone deacetylases, so in the expression uh, of the corresponding genes. We think that uh, a more comprehensive assessment of uh, 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 epigenetic changes as uh, we can obtain with uh, Taxic uh, is really will really provide us much more information and can basically capture uh, the, the real epigenetic changes in the disease more comprehensively than just looking at DNA methylation. And what yeah, I just want to ask this um, so you, you would have to need to use two controls, right? You would need to control for yeah, your disease samples versus younger. Uh, individuals mm. and also versus aged individuals to see really the difference differences between what is aging and what is what is this what is the disease, right? Yes. Yeah, so to a certain extent, of course, there's already some public data available uh, on uh, uh, DNA methylation changes or uh, epigenetic changes uh, uh, in the brain during adult aging. So we can, of course, also use those, this data. But ideally, of course, uh, uh, in the future, we also want to collect our own data there. And of course, uh, among the controls uh, uh, that we look at, we also have different ages. So we can, to a certain extent, also look at the, the, the differences between uh, individuals at, at different ages. But definitely, we need uh, many different types of controls. So we need uh, aging controls. We need uh, age match controls. Uh, and we need also disease controls. So we want to look uh, also at uh, not just Parkinson's disease, but also some atypical forms of Parkinsonism, so in particular uh, uh, um, para palsy, so that's another form of Parkinson's disease, so that we can really also find uh, those changes 
that are really specific for uh, idiopathic Parkinson's disease as compared to these other forms of Parkinsonism. So this is really important for building really specific uh, uh, biomarker models for differential diagnosis. So in the last about 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific life. Um, maybe you can give a short summary about your most important findings, findings maybe, and what we maybe might have missed in this interview. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, the main focus of my work is really diagnostic model building for Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I think one of the, the main recent findings uh, was a study that you already uh, mentioned a bit. So this, this study looking at the combined uh, uh, modeling of changes in uh, neuroimaging data and metabolomics data for Parkinson's disease as compared to controls. I think there we could really show that integrating these very diverse types of data that really provides uh, a major added value. And I think that's that's basically also our strategy for the future to really try to look at uh, different uh, types of data that really capture uh, different predictive information content. And that's basically also our goal for, for our epigenetics study to not just look at epigenetics, but then to combine this data also with transcriptomics data, with genetic data, and really see uh, what, what changes uh, 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 at the network level, combining all these different data sources together. I think that's a, a really nice uh, finishing sentence. Thank you, Rutko, for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.